Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everyone, this is Tim Chavez from Faith Matters. For today's episode, we spoke with Christian Heal. BYU's Maxwell Institute has just released an amazing new volume of research called Ancient Christians that offers remarkable insights into Christianity's earliest centuries. It's intended for Latter-day Saints, but based on the best scholarship available to give us a glimpse into what these ancient Christians believed, how they worshipped, and the ways in which they saw and experienced the world. Christian Heal was one of the editors of this volume and wrote the chapter that we spoke with him about called Preaching Christ. In his chapter, Christian explores several fascinating topics that we got to ask him about, including the ritual of baptism and what were referred to as the deep mysteries of baptism, what Sabbath worship looked like early on, and how he deals with the concept of apostasy and restoration, including how we can view the evolution of Christianity without seeing it through an us-versus-them paradigm. And for those of you just being introduced to Christian Heal and his work, he's a research fellow at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship. He received a BA in Jewish History and Hebrew from University College London, an MST in Syriac Studies from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in Theology from the University of Birmingham. As we study the New Testament this year, we actually hope to bring you more of the insights that the Maxwell Institute has shared through this book. So that's it for today. Thanks as always for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation with Christian Heal. Well, Christian, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We're really excited about this this book and this conversation. Thanks. It's so, great to be here. Yeah. Really wonderful. Thank you. Um, so many interesting things to talk about in your chapter, but I wondered if it's okay if we start in the preface of the book, because... Um, it, it almost, it was really beautiful and it, it sort of took me by surprise. You, you open the book, you and the editors write about this experience that everybody, you say everybody in the book has, has had this experience of feeling called to the New Testament in one way or another through a series of promptings. Like you, you have all felt this real pull to study the New Testament. So I wonder if we could just start there and could you talk about how you found yourself in this world and, and, you know, why, why the New Testament? And why Maxwell Institute? And how did this book all come about? Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, and I think we wanted to start the book with this uh, declaration of kind of devotion. Right? I mean, this isn't an academic enterprise. This is a really both an academic enterprise and an expression of our faith. We we believe in the restoration in and believe that God is at work in our lives and at work in our scholarship. So I, I really feel that about all the contributors to this book and, and especially with the editors that we've worked with closely over the last three years to kind of bring this thing together. And I think that every, you know, J- Jason Combs, one of the editors talks about some of the stories that he has as he begins the introduction of, of this kind of sense of his place within the church and, and, I think that we've all felt in being prompted to kind of go to graduate school that it was a prompting. Mm. This was not, and mostly you can tell that because this is not a wise career choice. (laughs) Parents, parents are never excited when their child says, uh, I think I'm going to go into, in my case, I'm going to go and do an undergraduate degree in Jewish history. 
for example, yeah. I'm going to go and do a master's in, in Syriac studies. It's getting worse. Gonna, <laughs> now I'm going to do a PhD in theology. This is not yeah. helping. They're imagining me being in the attic for the rest of right. my life, just sort of unemployable. And, but you have this, um, for, for me, it came, I think, as reading as a missionary. I always feel this is kind of one of my kind of pet theories. I think as a, as a missionaries, you kind of get one or two revelations about your life. And maybe it's because of that period where you're really kind of devoted to God and you start to feel those kind of promptings that we can feel all throughout our lives of like what we should do. And I, for, for me, the two things which kind of came through is one, God loves all of his children and is working with all of them and is working through all of the, the kind of churches and organizations and is just constantly inviting and enticing us to do good and to sort of come back to him. I really felt that in a, uh, a kind of a powerful way. And the other is I wanted to study ancient languages. And I hadn't, nothing had sort of prepared me for this. I wasn't really kind of, wasn't one of those missionaries who like read Hugh Nibley before my mission or did any <laughs> of that stuff. But as a missionary, I started to discover this kind of world of scholarship that Latter-day Saints have started to engage in, the work of, of people like Hugh Nibley, the work of farms, and thought, this is marvelous. And so bringing these two together, I didn't, take this on to sort of become an apologist as such because I didn't feel there was an there was anything that needed to be def defended right I didn't yeah. feel as though I'm under attack I felt as though uh, this is all I'm all part of God God's work I feel called to this church I feel as though this is where I'm supposed to be and so I started this study that got me into first Hebrew and Jewish studies but then discovering that the Christian um well that Jesus spoke Aramaic and so the beginnings of the New Testament sort of world that we read about are not in this kind of the Greek that we're used to reading the New Testament in, but in Aramaic. This is the language that Jesus and his apostles first would have spoken. And then learning that, that the church spread not only westward to the kind of familiar story that ends up with us, right? It's mm -hmm. a, and it's a lovely story that, that begins in Jerusalem and goes to sort of to Rome and then to Europe and then to America and then to Salt Lake City and here we are. Right. I mean, this is our story, but the, yeah. but it also spreads eastwards up into the kind of Aramaic speaking world of the Middle East. And the church, I ended up studying this kind of Christian tradition that spreads, uh, all the way from kind of the Mediterranean coast all the way to China, to India, to Mongolia and realized that the spread of Christianity kind of happened in this sort of dynamic and kind of eastward way. And so I, this was just a wonderful revelation to me. And I felt, I've always felt that we're the role of scholars, Latter-day Saint scholars is to kind of go out and find all the good and all the true things, kind of bring them back to Zion. Wow. That this gathering is not just a f gathering of, of people, of souls, but it's a gathering of texts. It's a gathering of knowledge. It's a gathering of insight. And so I thought, hey, this is like really fantastic. I get to go places where no one has been before without getting on a spaceship. It's really like awesome. <laughs> yeah. I get to like read texts that people are not reading. You know, Latter-day Saints haven't had a chance to look at and discover areas of kind of the early Christian world and early Christian church. So wow, That's well, beautiful. Yeah, yeah let me that. let me ask you, and this isn't this isn't in the plan necessarily, but it, it's coming up for me. What it sounds like faith. I mean, based on that description, it sounds like faith has 
come relatively easy to you throughout your life. And maybe, maybe that's a total mischaracterization, but part of what I'm hearing is that you had from, sort of from the beginning, this really expansive view of what faith should be, that you see God working at sort of at all different times in all different places. And it seems to me that that type of faith would hold up pretty well, where a lot of people, I think, myself included, when you start with a more provincial faith, that's a lot smaller, it's, it's much more brittle and easier. And, uh, can find very serious challenges more, more easily. Is that, is that, has that been your experience that you've always had that expansive view and therefore never really had, I don't know, too much of a dark night of the soul when it comes to, when it comes to your faith? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I think it's a lovely way to, to sort of frame the, um, the kind of problem of being a person of faith. And I think I started out as a very kind of orthodox, uh, Latter-day Saint. I was a, I was kind of, um, I t- my children sort of point out to me. I was a fanboy. <laughs> I, I mean, I loved this stuff. I like, yeah, yeah. I liked the scriptures. I liked, you know, scripture masteries. Yeah. I liked memorizing. I liked the, and I really felt like before my mission that the church had all the answers, right? And if you just ask me, ask me anything, I felt like I was a constant sort of ask me anything. Kind of, and yeah, I, I had a, a memorable testimony kind of, faith confirmation experience when my older brother was on a mission in Haiti, Haiti and sent back photos of him baptizing some, um, some members, new members of the church there in, in Haiti and just felt this overwhelming feeling of kind of love and God's love for me and for them and that the work that he was doing was right. Wow. And this was a conversion experience that's kind of changed me into somebody who was willing to talk about my faith. And I had a um, I joined the Christian Union. They weren't excited to have me there and started talking to, to friends. I had a friend who ended up uh, joining the church. And that was a lovely and, – and so I, ha- I went as a missionary with this kind of absolute confidence. Yeah. And so for me, and absolute confidence of the kind of rightness of my position. And so for me, I feel that God's grace was at work in saying um, there's more going on here. Right, you know that I've been kind of talking to you. You know that you're um, uh, where you're supposed to be, but I'm at work with all of these people that you're serving around. I know I served in in Southwest England and in Cornwall and Devon and sort of um, Somerset. There's lovely South Wales, lovely part of the world, and just feeling that sense of. Um, and it was late in my mission. I started off as somebody who wanted to sort of, you know combat right that this was you know i had to learn the scriptures so that i could sort of respond but i i ended up uh and probably as a result was not a great missionary as such because my question went from i have a message to you to tell me about your experience with god wow wow i mean to get there as a missionary <laughs> could i just say is really incredible it doesn't it doesn't happen often i don't think at least well in my yeah. experience out of out of one you know yeah. it, it didn't happen during those, <laughs> during those two years but that's wow. amazing. Yeah. I I felt like one of the uh, – w- when I read the title of the book, part of me wondered if the book was going to all be about explaining the way the restoration is the primitive church. You know, the, explaining mm-hmm. that like we are the one, the one and only way that's doing it the actual – doing it actually correct, you know. Yeah. And and I felt like what I've taken is just sort of just this feeling of abundance. Like I, I it felt like I think maybe I, the way I was thinking – at least the way I grew up was believing that the restoration sort of encompassed 
the primitive church in air quotes, you know, the way we talked about it yeah. in the in the articles of faith. And this sort of just like reversed all of that for me. The the primitive church felt so abundant. And I can see how the restoration just fits so beautifully inside that tradition. But yeah. I also I love just this feeling of connection with these very early Christians. There there are so many threads that feel very familiar, the same threads of love. But yeah. it looked really different. And and I we were especially interested in your chapter because this kind of felt like the going to church chapter. Like yeah. it's yeah. the it's yeah. like what going I mean, we, we you talk about how we worship through sermons. Like we we worship through speech. Like that's yeah. a major part of the yeah. way we yeah. worship today. Yeah. And so your chapter specifically deals with the way they were doing that in in the earliest version of Christianity. And yeah. and so I love that, you, but I love that you came at it with just so much abundance it, and somehow it felt very connecting. I felt more connected to what, how Christianity uh, began. Uh, you know? That's fantastic. And that definitely was our aim. Yeah, right? mm. I mean, we're, we're used to this sort of traditional Nemanas narrative. Yeah. To some extent, in, in terms of us, them being the kind of the rest of Christianity. And that there was this, brief period of hope, which we call the primitive church in the Articles of Faith. But the, the question has been basically um, not really kind of what went on there, because that's the kind of New Testament, but when did it end? Mm-hmm. And so Latter-day Saint scholars have kind of conjectured, well, it ended, I mean, it was already ending in the New Testament. Right. Or it kind of went up to the last martyrdom. I think, you know, someone like James E. Talmadge would say, we can see signs of kind of true faith up into the fourth century. But basically, we were interested in uh, when did it end? What are the signs of the apostasy? And also, um, what are the ways in which we are kind of like, right? What are the signs of the restoration? Right. The, and this felt for me like a, um, a game that I didn't really want to play. It's sort of given my sort of background. It's like, um, and we talk about in the kind of preface, this notion of kind of reaching a hand of friendship across the, the, yeah. the distance of time and, and, trying to find commonality, trying to find a love of God, of devotion to Jesus, these things within. And what we found as a group of contributors is that it's all there. And we're building here, I think there's a there's a lovely book um, published by Oxford University Press, edited by Miranda Wilcox and John Young, um, called Standing Apart. And that gave us the kind of foundation to be able to do a project like this, because they're the ones who came along in a kind of in a, a kind of an academic setting and worked out the kind of problems of our approach to the the restoration and, and gave space created space for a, another group of scholars to come in and say, um, and some the same group of scholars to come in and say, okay, if we've if we're going to say that there's light here, that there's truth here, that there's beauty, that there are lovely things, then what are they? Mm-hmm. Right? Bring, tell us some of them. Right? You've made your case. And yeah. so this is the kind of, um, this is the showing part of this kind of project. It's like we're going to sh- now show you in the best way we can the lovely things that are here in the early Christian tradition. Yeah. Wow. Well, let me ask That's you beautiful. then, um, <laughs> how do you think about, how do you think about apostasy, both, well, because for me, the term apostasy, I would say I've mostly I've mostly thrown it out, if I'm being totally honest, both in terms of because it's always looked like a way to it's always I mean, not always more recently it has become for me, it seems just a way to look down on people, either individual when we're talking about individual, quote unquote, apostasy or the, the great apostasy. And so and so this obviously 
gets gets into that. So is there a useful is there a useful way to think about apostasy? And is, has your study and and faith uh, brought you to a different place in terms of what that really means? Um. So I don't I don't know if a, a, apostasy may it may be a fruitful category to sort of explore, but. I find, and I think that you've found sort of restoration to be a much more fruitful mm-hmm. category uh, because it allows uh, apostasy is about, you know, uh, pointing out what's gone wrong and restoration mm-hmm. seems about, uh, about possibilities yeah. rather than kind of category, rather than cataloging loss where we're expanding yeah. the, the, the ways. And what, one of the things to sort of think about for me when I think about restoration is to recognize because I work in both the old and the new testament both the kind of ancient kind of Jewish world and and the and the Christian world you sort of quickly realize that our restoration was not simply about restoring this primitive church as so many of the restorationist movements in the period were about it was it was about trying to get back to this kind of original Christianity but Joseph Smith's vision was so much more comprehensive that we can't when we talk about apostasy we can't simply mean the church the mm. christian mm. tradition because we're restoring um sort of uh, ideas about adam and abraham and we're restoring ideas of the temple ideas of covenant ideas of of israel and so much more really than than was kind of there I think in that kind of early Christian period and things which have never yet been revealed. They have this notion of this kind of expansive new thing, which relates to God working in the world throughout history, I think. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that if viewed from that perspective, uh, I I often say, I believe there was an apostasy because I believe in the restoration. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what it looks like Mm -hmm. or when it happened even. Did it happen in 1829? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Or did it happen in you know? Or where did it happen? Right. Yeah. Is is this an apostasy that kind of related to Joseph Smith's world? Because if our narrative of apostasy, and this is so much of the work has been done in showing that this is a a, a kind of a an adoption of a Reformation and kind of Protestant notion of rejecting the kind of Catholicism and how, how we move on to create something new. And why why are we doing that? Well, because there was an apostasy and, and Catholicism represents that. But if your view of Christianity grows to include not just Catholicism, but now Greek Orthodox tradition. Mm-hmm. So we have another tradition that's not even included in this narrative. And then if it expands further to include this the Oriental, what used to be called the Oriental, or the Middle Eastern churches, the Syrian Orthodox, the Copts, the Ethiopians, and then going further east um, to the Christians in India who were who were there when the Portuguese arrived, worshiping Jesus. So you you then have to have a narrative which is much broader than that. And I don't think this kind of traditional it all ended, and this is the yeah. the fulfillment of it. It doesn't help in that uh in those set of questions yeah yeah that's so, so interesting that's it. really yeah and, and i feel like another way that there's sort of some space created i think it is easy to have this tendency that around exclusivism you know mm-hmm. and and i think understanding the apostasy in that way would be would be like a new really generous paradigm to sort of start breaking that down but i also feel like I I had that same feeling just learning about this earliest version of the church because you can't be very critical of that, right? Like these people knew people who knew people who knew Jesus, right? Yeah, <laughs> so know, like whatever is. they started yeah. with, like there should be some richness there that we're drawing from. And yeah. so that even that all by itself 
really kind of worked. I could feel myself kind of having to open up and imagine that like true Christianity could look very different. And yeah. there, you know, this is the water that we're swimming in now, but it was so interesting to, to see the symbols and the, and the architecture and the art. And then, mm-hmm. and, and then to hear, you know, how they were actually worshiping day to day and, and the kind of rituals that were part of their lives, because that's who we are too. And I, that was just, yeah. that was a really, um, it felt like there's just so much potential there for for deepening our faith by understanding that about our own faith yeah. tradition. You yeah. Know? So I would just love to hear a little bit about that. Like, can you talk about what early sermons and preaching looked like? In as and when do we can know? We, when do we know? I mean, how early is it that we start learning about what they're doing on a Sabbath? Well, I was going to ask maybe just to preface that if we could, if you could tell us just quickly what source material we're actually looking at other than the Bible in order to s- sort of like come at whatever knowledge we now have about, about this. So yeah, 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 yeah. I think um, one of my um, lovely uh, teacher at Oxford, who was a Greek Orthodox um, bishop, uh, Callistos Ware, spoke about leaving the New Testament and going into the second century. It's like going through a tunnel and suddenly kind of appearing in this beautiful <laughs> place that's fully inhabited. You're like, what kind of happened in the meantime? Right. Yeah. So what we know is that there's a – if, if we've got a kind of a first century New Testament, then in towards the end of the second century, we we have this kind of fully formed Christianity where they're talking about church services, we're talking about um, a, a kind of a, an ecclesiastical structure. They're talking that they're, they're writing defences of the church from the early writers that we have is um, Justin Martyr, who's an, an, a, the apologists, as they they call people who are who are writing defences of Christianity in a kind of a pagan world setting and and against both Jews and against um, kind of pagans. It's like, how do you justify this religion? They have an important voice in shaping the kind of early Christian world. So we start to find their writings. And then quickly in the third century, we kind of move in that second, third century, we start having these amazing kind of thinkers who are drawing upon all the kind of richness of the world, the training of reading texts mm. in the world that, that, um, these Christians sort of found themselves and this training in, of, of how to kind of read well had been going on for centuries. We're kind of within the Greek tradition, learning how to read, um, and learning how to kind of speak and how to persuade and how to argue from Aristotle kind of on upwards. And we've, these are really kind of interesting, smart thinkers who are reading the Bible really, really carefully and speaking about it in ways which are not um, kind of obtuse, but in ways that are bringing all this learning to to making the Bible this message with an even ex- more expansive meaning. Yeah. yeah. And so we're starting in that sort of second, there's not a lot. There's a group of texts that they call the kind of apostolic fathers. These are the kind of the next generation of writers. Some of them are letters. Some of them are that look a bit like kind of Paul's letters. Some of them are early sermons. And so we start to have this, this kind of material. And then we start moving into a world in which we have uh, sermons, letters, doctrinal kind of exposition. And these are the kind of sources that we're dealing with from a textual front but then um, one of the things that this book does so well, thanks to two of the my co-editors, Mark Ellison and Catherine Taylor, who are both kind of art historians and deal with the material world, we realize this this deep and rich and beautiful you know, material culture left over. Many people have had a chance to kind of visit the catacombs and or to go to Ravenna or to see the these beautiful mosaics and these this 
attempt to express in kind of visual art the love of God and the kind mm-hmm. of glory of Jesus and the and the kind of messages of the gospel. And so we have this combination of kind of 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 textual material, of kind of material culture, uh, things that have been left over. And then we start to see in the kind of fourth century the writing of history with a, um, a, a bishop called Eusebius and the when Christianity kind of triumphs. And then it, we start to have a lot more. We've got things from bishops and from uh, the so-called fathers and these people who kind of wrote extensively to their communities. Yeah. And so, when, remind me, sorry. I was just going to clarify. So the, it was really not till the fourth century where we were actually, where you see that someone was actually recording what we consider historical events. Like, do, is there not yeah, much think, in between? I think that they're drawing on, they spoke about, they, they speak about drawing on earlier sources. And so what we know, what uh, you're constantly dealing when you're dealing with the ancient world with um, kind of part of the puzzle and you're yeah. having to extrapolate from these pieces that you have kind of what the whole image would have looked like. And we rarely kind of get a sense of the whole image. So what Eusebius does is he writes the history of the church from Jesus kind of up to his time. But the question is, one, how kind of reliable is this? Mm-hmm. And two, you know, but he seems to be working with earlier sources and he seems to be doing, um, but he's definitely got an agenda because it's a, it's this, and Jason talks about this in his chat, it's this kind of triumphalist narrative, yeah. right? The church has finally conquered, going through these years, decades, centuries of persecution. And now he's able to, you know, as so often, when you know the, the end of the story, you can kind of write a really good beginning right. to, that leads you up there. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we do start to see historical sources and these kind of histories of the this kind of self-conscious, like, okay, we're something that's here. We're going to write our story. Because up until then, the, it was really about uh, the story was the story of Jesus, and so and the story was how Jesus uh, enabled a, a complete reformulation of what the Old Testament was. For example, the, the Old Testament was the the scriptures of the early Christians. So this this was the kind of working out this story and bringing together. And Tom Wayman here talks about how do we form a canon and how do we yeah. bring so that we actually have the scriptures that we all agree on this is happening in these first few centuries as well yeah so so what is the very earliest record that we have of some kind of formalized worship service and did they start with an opening hymn followed by an invocation (laughs) so we do have justin martyr talks about this at the kind of in the second century that this process of um there being a a a kind of a, a a sacrament type event they would have a presiding authority and there would be a sermon attached to it and there would be scripture readings and the scriptures provided the basis for the sermon and this is the pattern that we see kind of in the church that we do we start to develop this um kind of liturgical year we start to develop what's later called a lectionary and these are your scripture readings that you have throughout the year and we start to develop a, 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 a preaching program or a preaching pattern which responded to um, I suppose the needs of the day combined with the things that are being read in the scriptures yeah. and so the public interpretation of scripture became an important part of preaching what we're doing here is I think it looks as though the earliest Christian preaching missionary preaching was really telling the life of Jesus and bearing testimony of that we found Jesus is the sort of 
is the answer. Jesus is the, the long promised Messiah and kind of explaining how Jesus fulfilled the, the Old Testament prof- prophecies of him and, and then declaring that kind of message that God is at work in the world. Again, the kingdom has come. And lo- much of the preaching we then find in churches is from this second century evidence onwards is the kind of unpacking of this like what does this mean for you as believers what does this mean for you so we're still telling the story of jesus we're still kind of retelling the story of jesus we're still trying to understand how jesus relates to uh, the old testament we're still trying to explore the scriptures but now we're also interested in in kind of this the formation the moral formation the kind of the uh, greater kind of understanding of a Christian community who have accepted Jesus. And do you feel like, I was curious about if, like how fluid that was, was was it, was it that, was it okay to explore different interpretations? You talked about there are four different ways to use scripture. Like maybe it's, maybe it is literally historical, maybe it's allegorical, but was it okay to be for that to be kind of free flowing and, and were people using all four of those ways for for any particular parable and or were, or were they sort of consolidating around a single interpretation I think you see I mean this is the, one of the things I love about kind of uh, one of the things I love about the early Christian world is this kind of variety of voices that you find and there's definitely some sense so um, ancient Antioch um, and ancient Alexandria were two kind of homes for particular types of approaches. And, and the Antiochians, as they call these, these teachers from Antioch, tended to be a bit more interested in the literal and kind of historical meaning. Like what does, yeah. what, 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 because for them, the, the people described, particularly as they're reading the Old Testament, the people described in the scriptures are lives that are worthy of, of kind of, um, following. These yeah. are exemplars. These are people who you can kind of follow. And so we want to understand them as people who God is working with and so that is their models for people who work with you. Alexandria is well known for, um, for the rise of Christianity for this allegorical interpretation where scripture or the text that they're reading and therefore scripture become these kind of extended metaphors. Everything is a parable. Everything is kind of meaning that you, is beyond the meaning that you're actually talking about. And so we see this happening. We also see them start to interpret script text morally. Like, how does this apply to you? And we're used to this. Yeah. This, you know, that's the kind of thing that we, you know, what that's does this stuck. mean about how I live my life? <laughs> yeah. And, and then the, another type of interpretation was, what does this mean about, um, the kind of end times? Mm-hmm. Like, how does this story and I think we could probably do that with the Book of Mormon. We could comfortably say we can we read it um, literally in the sense of we kind of follow the stories of the of the the individuals described in the book, and we're interested in the kind of relationships as it, and we're interested in kind of events. We also read it as an allegory. We can there are bits of it you could read. This is a this is actually not talking about this. It's talking about something else. Mm-hmm. And the Book of Mormon does that itself, with the kind of iron rod, and the, it gives us kind of allegories within it. But we can also read it as something which is talking about this is how the end will work out, yeah. and that's the way that President Benson read the Book of Mormon. It's just a description of, you know, the latter days. Yeah, and uh, we can read it for ethical models. And so, um, but there's definitely, but you have this sense that the early Christians loved the scriptures and were really interested in reading them closely, and then sort of finding ways to um, bring their beauty to their congregations. 
One of the authors that I love from the fourth century, a chap called Ephraim the Syrian, who died in 373, he spoke of scripture as a pearl that you sort of turn, and every time you turn it, you see some other beautiful thing. Oh. And so that there's there is this to go back to your question. There is this sense that the scriptures are kind of multifacetous, that they, yeah. they that there are different ways of reading them. There's different interpretations. We're not trying to find the one way. Yeah. Wow. That's I love a really that. Cool I love that you say, yeah, yeah that, that like so visual. You write at some point that in each community it was interpreted and in how you know whatever that mm. community brought to the table, they would interpret it that way. And and so it I mean I'm it makes me wonder you know, we're our own modern community. Like it makes sense that we're reinterpreting this in total, in totally new ways, but maybe that, maybe that is a really healthy thing to do. Like maybe that's part of this restoration, like yeah. really examining that pearl from every angle with everything that we can bring as, you know, modern Christians. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask too. So you talk about um, the preaching that was known as catechesis, which was sort of in preparation for, uh, for baptism. Yeah. But you also say that the deep mysteries of baptism were only taught in the eight days following the ordinance itself. And I need you to tell me what the deep <laughs> mysteries of baptism are because our daughter's getting baptized in a couple months and I don't know what to tell her. So if you can help us out with that, that would be really, really great. I know. That would, I wish I could help you. I wish I could okay. answer that question uh, for you. But I, th I think what you see there is this lovely, is this kind of the seriousness with which baptism is yeah. taught. Yeah, totally. It's often in places only happening once a year. It's only happening on sort of ju uh, just before Easter. And it's this introduction to um, these kind of awe-inspiring rites, as one kind of author speaks about them, these m moments in which um, you're, you are crossing a threshold. And at that point, you're then willing to, you're then able to kind of really learn about what, what does this, or what's the symbolism, I suppose, of, of the sort of baptism. And I don't, um, one of my, a treasured experiences is going down um into the kind of uh basement i think of it of uh, underneath the cathedral in milan i don't know mm. if you've ever had a chance to, to go there no and it's not particularly imp impressive but what it is is the site of where augustine was baptized and you see the kind of outline of this octagonal um okay yes there's a, a picture, picture of right? this oh right? fantastic oh, yeah, yeah exactly right there it is yeah you see the outline of this kind of octagonal baptismal font where they would have been baptized by immersion. They would have been probably either pre or post baptismal anointing. So there's this sense of, of, of a, a kind of a larger, um, uh, liturgical event, which, you know, has resonances for us as, as Latter day Saints. And then you're the, the baptistry was kind of separated from the church. And so you would kind of move as you, you're enacting this movement. Now that you've gone through this stage, you're now ready to kind of enter in the church and now partake the sacrament for the first time. Wow. You would, that's when you would sort of take the, um, the Eucharist and it would be, it would, you were then moving into this state where you're, where the Eucharist becomes this kind of nourishing, uh, and renewal. Wow, um, for these kind of Christians, what was having the baptistry underground symbolic, similar to how we how we do it in temples? Today? Yeah, I think that baptism was um, seen as like you're sort of dying with Christ yeah. and rising with yeah. Him, and so I think that there is a, d a definite sense of of that of that symbolism. They're kind of aware of that, and if you go to, I mean, some of these whole buildings survive like in Ravenna. They're still um, these kind of octagonal buildings, but it's lovely to to 
feel the distance narrow between us and these kind of early Christians and have this kind of sense of um, of place and kind of walking yeah. where they uh, would have walked. But there is, yeah, I, 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 I do love the idea of these kind of this series of sermons and this the, the, the preparing people to come into the the church, and we do so much of that afterwards. I think within our with our tradition, it's sort of will you know the it's this kind of um, we're rushed to baptism, and then mm-hmm. we're, now we'll kind of teach you what it's all about. But I, I yeah. kind of like this idea of of really preparing and it really meaning something. And that's it really, beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. did you? I I was trying to understand. Is this something that everyone would? I mean that most people in a congregation would choose to do? Was it as much of an identity marker for being Christian or not Christian as it is now? So um, I think there were people who, uh, so there were different, there were parts of the church that you could go into if you've been baptized and parts oh, really? that you couldn't. Wow. Um, and so when the when they would kind of close those off when the Eucharist was being, and, and only the people who had been, ba- been baptized could sort of be be there for that part of the, the ordinance. Um, everybody could hear the sermon, and that was why this is sort of a. It, it's always speaking to the faithful, but and and speaking to a kind of a, a group of people on the outside. So I think yes, and there are periods in kind of early Christianity where people um, put off their baptism. There's this sense of of that post baptismal sin was sort of unforgivable, and so you kind of put wow. off baptism. And so I think that sort of changes at various points. Um, and that's part of the reason why by Constantine is baptized so late. Um, and so it, baptism was like a, baptism was a really serious event. It was a yeah. serious commitment. It was a serious kind of covenant. You were really covenanting to, um, sort of follow Christ and to, to be uh, a faithful, um, uh, believer. And wow. so it was taken very seriously in the early church. Yeah. Wow. I, want, I want to ask too about some of like the emphasis of the teaching that was done in in the early church. Um, I, I have a few questions, but I guess one of them that came up for me, obviously, somewhere along the line within Christianity, there started to be a huge emphasis on behaving in a certain way in order to either gain eternal reward and go to heaven or avoid eternal punishment going going to hell. Mm-hmm. Was that sort of like heaven, hell, reward, punishment dynamic very present even early on? Or did you see some other emphasis in the in the teaching itself? I think that there is, I mean, ba- part of baptism was this uh, denunciation of, of Satan. You are, so mm, you are living really? in this world in which you are, you're aware of the forces of good and the forces of evil. You you are living in a in a, a world where there is a sort of two ways that we're either following one or we're not following the other. And, and so I think that that, um, so you certainly see that going on in, and I think that you see this sense of, um, this, uh, this concern for the sort of the, um, the faithfulness of the congregation and sometimes, uh, preachers becoming kind of frustrated with the congregation not kind of taking their uh, commitment sort of seriously enough or not following kind of faithfully enough um but i don't um those uh powerful um images of of that we find in kind of medieval cathedrals i don't think you see that quite as much in the kind of the mm. early church i think there's an awareness of it there's a but it seems to be pointing people more towards this kind of reward of, available through christ it's about salvation in christ more than this kind of warning for 
Although you find, I mean, there are sermons that focus on the Antichrist, on this kind of the, the, um, and there's, but much of it is trying to draw, there's an awareness of being kind of cut off. Um, there's a lovely, uh, in the Syriac tradition, there's this beautiful, um, dialogue poem that would have been sort of sung between kind of two choirs in the, in mm-hmm. the church, between the cherub and the thief on the right hand of Jesus. And who's told this day you'll be with me in paradise. And he's expecting not to be able to sort of get in. And so it's this dialogue between the cherub who's guarding the way with the flaming sword and this thief coming up. And this, this image of somebody who doesn't deserve to kind of be in paradise to go into heaven is the kind of is and, and is able to enter through the, the grace of, of Christ seems to, for me, to be the overriding image of wow. the Christian message of yeah. this time, rather than one of of kind of hellfire and damnation. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I was so interested when you talked about the the people who were actually doing the preaching in this era that that there was this a combination of a couple of things that were really important to people that there had to be deep personal righteousness, but also expertise. Like they really had to know what they were talking about. Yeah, and 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 also that they were kind of moving away from expertise and just rhetoric, like just being persuasive and getting people yeah. to listen to you. And, yeah. and I liked the, I liked the feel of that, that there was something more pastoral, that there, there was something that would actually really touch people's hearts, not just because they felt energized by the language, yeah. but because they, it was like kind of a, more of a, a reach for a heart knowing. So could you just talk about that? Like what, who, who, maybe first of all, who, who was preaching and teaching on, on these Sunday services yeah. Yeah. and, and were there qualifications? Or so most of the um, most of the preachers uh, are sort of are bishops, and then in some places they start to have kind of the the priests being able to preach as well as the bishop. But in many places, it's the the kind of bishop of that um, area who is doing the preaching, and the people that we know about um, the the ones who kind of whose writings survive. I think there were a lot more people preaching than the people whose writings survive. These tend to be people who have kind of training in rhetoric and have become Mm -hmm. Christians or were Christians, grew up Christians, and then had some kind of formal training in in how to sort of preach and then have to combine this with um, this sense of kind of holiness and goodness um, that that the the kind of notion that you kind of preach who you are and kind of what you are. And I, I think that we see a recognition of the of the danger of kind of people who can just be persuasive. Yeah, we don't we don't want to see that, um, but we also don't want to have people who don't know what they're talking about, right? So there is this sense of the this kind of deep immersion in the in the scriptures and the kind of doctrines of the church, combined with this facility to to speak and persuade, combined with a kind of a commitment to personal devotion in your own sort of spiritual life. And I think that when you find all those three together, I think that's when preaching seems to be um, uh, re- reaching its its high point. But, it turn- yeah. but I think that if you were to lose any one of them, it would probably be kind of rhetorical gifts or even, you know, you really, I think you always want to be taught by somebody who's, yeah. Um, has a relationship with God that's alive, yeah. and we've, I think we've all had experiences of of hearing from people who are not comfortable speaking, who don't really want to be talking in church, 
but speak from such a profound um, sense of faith that you can't help be moved. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that um, that you kind of begin there and then you can kind of build up. But I, I think there is, you know, there was clearly a concern that there were people who, you know, preaching who could just talk well, right? Yeah. 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 I love that part. That was maybe my favorite part of the chapter. Is it Jerome that does the yeah, advice exactly. for a teaching? And it just sounds like something you'd hear at a teacher training. Yeah, you know, it, on a Sunday, it's just <laughs> like don't don't be obnoxiously long winded. And yeah, it's no, like, exactly. It's yeah, fa- it's fabulously. You know, you're right. It's fabulously sort of <laughs> present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I was curious. Was there a was there an emphasis on in the teaching? On, on encouraging the congregants to hold correct beliefs. Obviously, it sounds like, yes, there was in terms of, in terms of believing in Jesus and putting your faith in him. Mm-hmm. But was there a, was there a sort of conjoined systematic theology that, um, that preachers would, or bishops, whoever was in charge was encouraging or, uh, strongly encouraging their, their congregants to believe? Yeah. I think that over time, there, um, there's a sort of an orthodoxy to uh, behind sort of underneath the message a set of assumed um doctrines about who Christ is the relationship between Jesus and God um the nature of the church the the kind of events of the of the um, the kind of second coming that what what we believe in in terms of salvation how salvation is sort of obtained and these could actually cause uh you know, conflict, right? I mean, because you have, you know, the the beginning in the fourth century and then going into the fifth century, we start to have a, a kind of a crisis over who Jesus is and the relationship between God and, and, and Christ. The, what, what we, what we believe about certain sort of ideas, um, about our ability to become like God, for example, or about, um, the nature of, you know, was there a pre-existence or wasn't there? Was, you know, so we start to see some of these ideas and we start kind of falling in and out of favor, being preached by certain people. We start to see the church kind of anathematizing people, just kind of cutting people off from the community. Wow. They're being kind of excommunicated, and their and so their ideas become sort of problematic. Interestingly, we see these kind of ideas coming back in through the kind of back door. They're being translated into other languages. So people. Uh, and this is part of that story, I think, of Christianity that we resonate with as Latter-day Saints because we're particularly attuned to moments of loss of really good ideas and and how they kind of survive and kind of reemerge. And I think uh, Terrell Givens has done such a good job of kind of sensitizing us to these kinds of things, which is certainly that's this is certainly going on. Um, but yeah, I think that there is this sense of, uh, but I don't find it to be um uh the overriding message i think the overriding message is back to the scriptures there seems to be there seem mm. to be this real emphasis on preaching from uh the old testament and the new testament of of trying to understand what jesus was saying in the gospels to try and you know and i think that this continued process kind of kept the church grounded and kind of uh, even though we could view the history of church, the the early Christian church, as one in, in of a series of kind of councils in which repeatedly bad decisions are being made. Mm. I think the experience of ancient Christians, and that's what we tried to kind of reach for in this book, was one in which you're attending uh, worship services each week and hearing the word of God 
preached by somebody who really believed and was a was a person of, of faith and you're read you're hearing the scriptures read you're hearing you're seeing kind of evidence of faith in the art in the architecture in um in in funerals and in in sort of the the way that the gospel is being kind of a, a announced in the world so uh, that's my sort of sense sure. mm, yeah. um, from what i'm reading do you feel like there's a reason why we haven't we haven't really experienced a like a contemplative branch of Christianity or version of Christianity. Like, it, did that happen mm. in these centuries where this orthodoxy was sort of like coming together? Because it, I, it kind of feels like that's something that a lot of traditions have, and I'm not sure where it is in Christianity. Yeah, I think that we start to see that in the the kind of third and fourth century, where people are turning to. Um, I think ascetic practices, as we'd see them now, or contemplative practices, um, time to, in prayer, extended time in prayer, extended time in fasting, ways of of kind of hacking into the the body and using it as a more um, attuned and sensitive instrument in connecting with God. Um, this kind of search for visionary experience, um, we sort of see that, and I think the you have this seems to be the kind of work of individual initiative which starts mm. to become um you know we start to have communities formed in monasteries in the kind of fourth century fifth century um but often the work of kind of individuals who feel this calling to uh that this yearning for god in a in a particular way and it's one that we see um in embryo in the new testament and i think it's one that really reflects um this kind of desire for union with god um and one that is expecting kind of god's re- you know the return of jesus um soon and either you know actually or because you sort of die that, that is yeah. preparing that has this idea of preparing for that yeah. so we definitely see this sort of yearning the, i don't i don't know where I think that there's some evidence of that kind of a tradition in our own church, but I think we're quite, we have to. I always have to tell myself like we're quite a young yeah. community. We're we're, yeah. we're still in that um, kind of a, apologetic phase, in that phase of articulating our own faith to the world, finding our place in the world. And I think that you see the lovely thing is that you can see individuals who feel this call to sort of seek God out in yes. prayer and seek God out within the, you know, they're kind of part of the community, but doing this individually. And I, I think that this current uh, emphasis on sort of church supported home uh, centered um, kind of worship, I think facilitates yeah. even more wow. of that. Yeah. That awesome. makes so much sense. Yeah. One of my, one of my very favorite things in the chapter came from the conclusion where it said early Christian preaching was a ministry to the wounded, which felt like that really is Jesus. That was Jesus, Jesus's whole project, you know, during his mortal life. And also seems like it, you know, it should be, it should be our project as well. And so I just wanted to ask you just as we sort of wrap up here, um, like what, when you were doing this research, you know, co-editing the book, authoring the chapter, what did you, what did you learn from these ancient Christians about how you yourself can be a better Christian? Uh, that's a, a lovely question. Um, I uh, I 
I'm spending a lot of time with a fifth century Christian called Narsai at the moment, who lived in the kind of Persian Empire, lived on the border of the Persian and the Roman Empire. And he talks about and calls the people who listen to his um, sermons to come and join the fair company of the just ones. And this is what he calls the kind of these righteous from the scriptures. And I love this notion of this community of believers that stretches from Adam to today that is um, an egalitarian community in the sense that all you need to join is your your faith and belief in Christ and this desire to follow in this way, to follow in this path. And Christianity really was this, it was called the way, and it's seen as a sort of a journey. And we use the expression covenant path now. This is just another variation on this theme of mm. we're journeying together and uh, we're not alone in this. We really are journeying together. We're journeying in our families. That's important in our communities. But I really feel as though we can join this kind of company of believers. And when I read the writings of early Christians and medieval Christians, I'm looking for companions on this journey. Mm. I'm looking for people who have maybe are a bit further ahead or have learned a bit more. I'm looking for to, for their insights and to feel that sense of commonality. And I think that's what I feel most of all. Like you're my people, yeah. right? I want to. I want you're the people I want to journey on this on this sort of pilgrimage to to the heavenly kingdom with. And that that I think more than anything is what um is, and the editors other kinds of people like that. I mean, it's mm. been a lovely experience, kind of working together on this. And so it's lovely to feel that in our own communities, in our families. But it's, I think we can reach out across time and find uh, friends, find traveling companions. Beautiful. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, and that, I, I, I could feel that reading reading this book. And um, yeah, th- it just feels like such a, a gift. It really is a beautiful offering to our community. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Um, and, yeah, it is really a remarkable uh, feat. This, uh, so. Thank you, and honestly, congratulations for putting this together to you and your co-editors and all the authors. It's really remarkable. Yeah, yeah thanks so much. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Thank Christian. You. Thank you. Good to be here with you. Okay, thanks so much for listening, and we really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Christian Heal. And of course, you can pick up the book Ancient Christians on Amazon. A huge thanks to Christian for coming on. And as always, if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get a chance, we'd love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. It really helps get the word out about Faith Matters, and we really appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening, and as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.